Today, we are talking to an adoption case manager about his role in the child welfare process. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Kat, and I'm here with Jack, and today we have a very special guest in the Fostering the Future studio. David Alonzo is here with us, who was an adoption case manager. So David, let me ask you a very serious question. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? What? has the most sugar (laughs) (laughs) probably something like the caramel ribbon crunch frappuccino do you like that one i get that one a lot when we go there yeah yeah that's That's what um when i've had teens that's their favorite drink is the caramel ribbon crunch frappuccino You know, the s'mores one's good, too. I like oh, that I one. didn't even know that I'll go with that. One. I'll go with s'mores. That sounds delicious. Let me ask you, David, what was your first experience with foster care? Like, did you know anybody growing up? Not that I was aware of. I mean, after I became a case manager in like 2015, one of my teachers said they were in foster care growing up. So, like, I knew someone who was a foster kid. I just didn't know. One of your teachers that you'd had as a child? My sixth grade teacher. Oh, my gosh. I'm from a real small town. So, like, everyone just knows each other for life. You know, I think a lot of times you don't know what foster care is. So, you fail to be able to define it. Because... I didn't know that I knew people in foster care until I learned what foster care was. And then looking back, I'm like, oh, that's what that was. Because I, I, in same situation, like I had a few people in my life who um, either had foster kids or went to foster care, but I just was like, oh, that's what they're doing. Same thing. So if you didn't experience foster care growing up in any way, what was it that drove your decision to work as a social worker in child welfare? I knew I wanted to help people. I just didn't know exactly how I was a substitute teacher for a year then I was a real teacher for a year and substitutes are real I guess sorry yeah <laughs> but um but like it's there's a difference no. with a full-time teacher that you have the experience where you're really getting to know all the kids yeah and I quickly realized that being in front of 30 kids at once seven times a day was not for me <laughs> can you relate there? I just like that. yeah that happened yeah. To too. when I left being a teacher I got one job at an adult group home while I was there one of my co-workers got a job as a case manager and I looked it up and was like I, I can do that did you have any was, idea how difficult and no. heartbreaking it would be oh my gosh no <laughs> not in the slightest and I got there and it's like um this is a lot of work. <laughs> that is the biggest understatement ever spoken on this podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
but at yeah. the same time, like I do think it, it better fit my skill set than like being a classroom teacher was because it's like even though you're overwhelmed constantly and you're always like in a fire that you have to put out, I don't have to speak in front of 30 people at once. <laughs> I can figure out how to put out the fire. I can drive around with my kid. If you're willing to put in the time and the effort to do things right in child welfare, like, yeah, you'll be overwhelmed, but you can do the job. And you make a huge impact. It's so different because in most fields, the harder you work, the more it benefits you. And in this case, the harder you work, the more it benefits others. It's true. And and you don't even realize it really when you are in the middle of it. But then when you take a step back and it's like, oh, I actually helped those people. Can you tell me about your position, like what it was and what it entailed? I started off as a regular dependency case manager, which you guys have had an episode on that. So we don't have to get too in depth. Um, I moved to an adoption case manager. I eventually, after a year of that, became adoption supervisor at a different agency. An adoption case manager in terms of the work, you're doing a lot of the same work as a dependency case manager, but you're also, and it's different with different agencies. Sometimes you're the primary case manager. Sometimes you're the secondary case manager, but you're also doing all the adoptions work to get kids adopted. If they're already in an adoptive placement, you're doing the home study, which is more in depth than a placement home study. You're doing a child study, which is like a really in depth, everything about the child from their parents' histories to their history to all their mental health stuff, their medical stuff, just a really in-depth look at the kid. If your kids aren't matched, you are doing match meetings. You're doing the referrals to get the kids on websites like the Heart Gallery to try to get kids matched. You're going to match events. You are, there's a lot, there's a lot. It's, it kind of sounds like two jobs. It is. Because the case manager alone is a pretty overwhelming job to always stay on top Just, of what's going on with them in the court case and all that. But then also you're an adoption worker. Yep. And you're going to all the court hearings. Depending on the agency, you're writing all the judicial review reports. And mostly adoption case managers are usually, they're experienced. So it's not it's not a promotion. It's more of a lateral move, but it's kind of a promotion. Like uh, you generally don't go straight into adoption case management. You generally start as a case manager. No, yeah. Usually you're it's certified people who are who have experience and they know what they're doing. Yeah, I don't know if I met anyone that's come right out of training and been an adoption worker. Adoption case managers I've worked with were case managers. Yeah. It's like a case manager, but you're doing a lot more paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) But you're not working with biological parents. No. What has to happen for a child to get to the point that they're available for adoption, that they're being brought to you as a case? So usually we would get a case after the parents' rights were terminated, or if there's a missing parent, they do a diligent search. They get back what's called a putative father registry, um, saying there is no father for this child. They publish for the child, like, where's the father on this? one and then they're able to terminate a missing parent. But after the parents' rights are terminated and then they have what's called an MBI hearing, a manifest best interest and said, it's in the best interest of this child to be free for adoption. The judge frees them for adoption. Then the adoptions worker can start doing the adoptions work. So an MBI takes place after TPR happens. Okay. Sometimes TPR will happen and they don't free the kids for adoption. That's rare. I don't think I've ever been on a case that's been like that. But no, it's it's after TPR. 
most people don't know about things like manifest best interests or the mm-hmm. judge making a child legally free for adoption. Is that correct? I think so. I don't think that's a common Yeah, I don't think so. Thing. I've never heard of that. Can you kind of walk us through the process of what happens from termination of parental rights through adoption day? Okay, so parents' rights get terminated. You wait an appeal period which I believe is 30 days after the TPR. If there's no appeal, then we can start actually trying to get the child adopted. If they're in a placement that's already an adoptive placement, we do our child study, we do our adoption home study. And even if, you know, you're a placement, so you've had a home study already, you have to do another adoption home study. And it's definitely more intense. I remember having one where I just feel like, oh my gosh, she just like ripped my insides out. And like, basically we had this session where we talked about every devastating thing that's ever happened in my life and uh, I felt exhausted by the end of it whereas I've had you know I've had a million home studies by now between adoptions and being a foster parent so it's definitely more in depth yep you definitely get probed the backgrounds are more in depth too so you have to wait for adoption backgrounds to come back once that is back we do what's called disclosure once you're approved um, which is we go over the child study with you you then make a decision if you want to adopt. We usually make people wait a few days, even if we know they're going to say yes. Like in the moment, everyone's going to say yes. So once you say yes, after a few days, we give you an adoption packet, which has some resources, a list of attorneys that adoption attorneys were not allowed to tell you which adoption attorney, because I guess it would show favoritism. Conflict of interest or something. And there's some great attorneys. We have to do subsidy paperwork, which is... Adoption assistance agreement saying like you're agreeing to this much subsidy for the child. This Another thing people outside of the child welfare system don't know is that adoption from the child welfare system is free and you get an adoption subsidy. And I think a lot of people, um, when they look at adoption as an option, one of the barriers there is they're like, it's so expensive. Not only are all of your expenses covered from foster care, that you will continue to receive a stipend. If you were the foster parent, you will continue to receive a stipend. If you were not the foster parent, if you're a different person adopting the child, there will be a reimbursement. Is, what is it called? A stipend or what is it called? Yeah, it's a subsidy. We call a it subsidy a subsidy. Yeah. To help cover the cost that you will incur in taking care of the child. It's not anything crazy great. You know, it's not going to cover all of the child's expenses, but it definitely offsets that. In addition, they also get their health care covered mm-hmm. and also their college is paid for. Their college is paid for. Yep. Yeah. That's a conversation I've had with so many people outside of work who it was a barrier they want to adopt but they're like it's going to cost me tens of thousands of dollars it does that it's, it does trust it's me like, <laughs> I've been through that <laughs> but they don't understand like no if you adopt a kid out of the foster care system then it's not going to cost you any money the yeah, legal fees are paid for you don't even have to for. pay for the lawyer no the, the list of lawyers that you were mentioning are the ones that will bill the state directly yeah there's no cost involved in that obviously there's the cost of raising a child but if you're looking to parent then that's mm-hmm. going to come in Anyways, and it sure is nice not to have to worry about that college bill for of course. those of your kids Gosh. that come from foster care. And I think it's until they're like 28 years old. Yeah, so they, they can just become doctors. It and it's a yeah. couple of years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you're right. That's 28 years old. Mm-hmm. People should adopt from the foster care system. So, after we agree on a subsidy, you sign another packet of paperwork. We give that to the attorney. It's called the disclosure packet. The attorney takes that. They're like, this is good. Then they go to the judge, try to get a court date. They set a court date. And then that's when the adoption's finalized. How are adoptive parents found 
or chosen if there's more than one option? We want to go with family first. So we look for family. A lot of times if the kid is in a placement with like grandma or aunt or uncle or even adoptions with older brothers and sisters, then that's who we want to go with. If we don't have family, we look for non-relatives, which could be a foster parent who already has the child. If we don't have any non-relatives, we recruit. So that entails like trying to get the kids on websites like the Heart Gallery. Let's say two people want the same set of kids. There's a lot that goes into that. Like we want to keep siblings together. We'll try to go to a placement that wants to adopt all the siblings. Mm -hmm. If there's no one we can find after they get on the recruitment website, people will see the child and they'll inquire. Sometimes they already have home studies completed by private agencies. Those tend to go first because like we have something to read. We'll get all the home studies. We narrow it down and then we try to start match meetings. So a match meeting is we will have a committee. We'll have multiple families in that day and the committee consists of have you guys discussed ARC on this podcast? Um, I think I we've think measured it but not. So we can get more in depth into ARC too. Yeah. So ARC is called Adoption Application Review Committee and that's if, if there's something in an ado- a potential adoptive parent's background that's like questionable or is like a disqualifier and it's just like this is not like something that's gonna say like we can you can't adopt forever but it's something like we need to review this so we set up a meeting the adoption case manager goes out they do like an interview with the person they fill out this questionnaire they type up a report they submit it to the lead agency who runs the committee. The committee is uh, made up of the one person from the lead agency who's running the meeting and then third parties that work in the child welfare system, but they don't work on this case. So like someone from the guardian ad litem, usually there's a therapist, someone from DCF, and then your case manager's there, your adoption case manager's there, the therapist is there, just anyone who's involved with the case is there. And then the person, the potential adoptive placement is there and they, they ask about this person's history. And it's like, okay, these things happen in your background. And sometimes it's like, a drug charge from 30 years ago. But sometimes it's like, okay, you've had like 18 calls to your home Mm. for like inadequate supervision. And we go over each one and it's really a horrible experience for the potential adoptive placement because it's just like, you're really grilling me. You're going over all these things in my life, a lot of which they probably want to forget. We had a... um, Gosh, this poor guy, he had gone to like prison for a year, years and years prior. And he raised his grandson probably from the day he was born. Hmm. And we had and like he wasn't like great in the ARC interview. (laughs) And it's just like, okay, let's do another one. (laughs) Let's. And the judge is like really getting mad at us. And she's like, we know what the issues are. You need to fix this and come to some conclusion because the ARC staffings, they don't have to end in a like yes or no. They can end in like we need more information and then we'll have another staffing. It draws off out the process months and months and months and months. Right. Because you have to work with everybody's schedule. Yeah. And- yeah. So this poor guy, he's like sitting there. Really, why can't I just adopt my grandson? Uh, he, eventually he did. But then like if they don't do well in your interview as 
the professionals, you have to be like, I have to make sure this child's safe. But like, if we say no, we're dragging this process out and this kid is not getting permanency that they need. When he's been with yeah. his grandfather's yeah. whole life. Yeah. yeah. Sure. He's not moving around. He's not going to different homes like a lot of foster kids, but like the caseworker coming all the time, like that's stressful on a family. Yeah. And we, we had talked it's, about that a lot. You had talked to me when we adopted baby Jack is um, when we got baby Jack, he was 10 days old and he um, uh, had one visit over the course of two and a half years before he was adopted. Um, it took a really long time to get through to the TPR process because we kept getting new case managers and every time we got a new case manager it was like all right we're gonna do this we're gonna get this kid home and it's like you know in in those types of situations where there's no engagement from the parents and also if you had taken a look at the history you would know that a reunification was not really ever be possible you know while he was with us the whole time so he's been with us pretty much his whole life those first two and a half years were so much stress because there was always the like is he gonna leave tomorrow is something gonna happen mm -hmm. is a relative gonna pop up to not have that permanency for him and for us was stress. And for us to have that stress, as young as he was, he definitely felt the stress, you know. And our whole family was, uh, my son over here kept saying he was going to learn Canadian so that if we had to run away to Canada with his brother, he'd be ready. Until a family reaches permanency, regardless of the stability of the placement, the anxiety that's involved is a lot for everybody involved. I'm super interested in like genetic genealogy, you know, like the 23andMe stuff, because I listen to a lot of true crime podcast yeah. too. <laughs> I mean, so does Jack Daddy. So we share them. But I've always, I've been wondering for like the last year and a half, how things would be different in child welfare if they would use genetic genealogy on these kids, not just because it would bring potential fathers to the surface or yeah. potential siblings to the surface. Yeah. You know, I don't know that it would ever bring like viable relatives to like that could be placement. But you know, I do wonder about like, are there kids who have other siblings in care? A mother can, she can gestate a pregnancy for nine months. She can never name the father. She can never tell the father. But we have potential tools at our disposal to find, you know, potential relatives or fathers. And so I have wondered if that could help some of these cases, you know, not just for like relatives and home studies, because I don't know that it actually would help, but just to like broaden the spectrum of opportunities for relatives for these kids. I, I think that's a great idea because especially like if you have an older sibling, I have had cases where like a dad will pop up on like five different cases. The world is small. There's a lot of relationships that people find out. They're like, oh my gosh, I'll take this kid right away. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. um, especially if you're a much older sibling, mm -hmm. like we've explored people who is like, I have a brother. Totally. Well, that yes. happened to me this year or a year and a half ago. We found out we had another brother on 23andMe and it's like, oh my gosh, well, it's like um, you are grieved that you've lost someone yeah. all those years. And I would be shocked if like half the kids in foster care aren't in a similar situation. Of course, of course. And as you said, when you found out as an adult, you grieved. It has to be horrible. But then, I mean, was there any kind of afterward like, oh my gosh, I want to make a connection or... Yeah, we have a connection now and we have a developing relationship, but we have lost 32 years. Wow. And so it's not lost on any of us because now there's four of us mm -hmm. that we've lost all these 
years together and that there were adults who kept us apart. Mm-hmm. Gosh, which is why as the adoption workers, like at least in my mind, like our biggest thing is like we need to keep siblings together. Yeah, I'm, I totally am on board with that. And a lot of times when when I hear people talk about like, you know, after the adoption, it's just I just don't feel like it's in their best interest to keep these yeah. visits going. I mean, it's, you know, and I, I often think that like how resentful that child will, might be as an adult really realizing that the parental figure made that decision for them to take away their biological sibling. I've even been to adoptions where on adoption day, it wasn't a joyful experience for me because it's like we did a separated sibling staffing, which we can talk about those. They decided these kids need to be separated. I said, no, I didn't. That was my recommendation of the staffing. Like they need to all be with together. And then the one family, like one kid got adopted first. They made this huge deal about, and I get it that you're adopting a child and, but your sister's there and she's not getting adopted that day. This is horrible. Yeah, I did have an experience with um, a kiddo that came to me that was supposed to be just for a night and stayed a bit longer. He had basically been in care since he was four years old. I think he was 11 at the time. All of his siblings had been adopted except for him, one by one, and he had watched it happen. And it was devastating for him, especially because he had gone through many disrupted adoptive placements. I mean, first of all, to go from four to 11, being in the foster care system, no wonder he had disrupted adoptive placements. But to be removed from his siblings and watching them get adopted one by one is and, and being the last one chosen has got to be very uh, difficult. Well, that leads me to our next question, which is, can you tell us about your worst day, your hardest day? Any ARC staffing was a really hard day because I felt bad for the prospective adoptive parents, even though we needed to have that staffing. And even though sometimes like we do that staffing and we're like, this person can't adopt these kids. Mm -hmm. That actually probably made it harder (laughs) when you're like, we have to go a different direction. I'm sorry. There are adoptions that fall through. Can I ask you a question Uh, about disrupted adoptions? I feel like most of the time disrupted adoptions happen because people don't have appropriate expectations or understanding of kids who have had trauma. You're completely right. Um, So we've talked, um, actually, I was just re-listening to one of our first podcasts. And one of the things we talked about was um, going into foster care with the sole intent to adopt is not a great idea because the purpose of foster care is to reunify. And Mm -hmm. if your intent is to adopt, then your thought process and your mind frame is not going to be one that is going to be encouraging and supportive of the parents, uh, the family unit and that reunification. And as positive as you can be. And um, like everybody's going to be able to feel how you really feel, you know, Um, and and it can be heartbreaking because, you know, not every kid is going to be adoptable and you Uh can't look at a placement like this is going to be the kid I adopt if they're not TPR yet. Uh, Adoption disruptions, I feel like are one of the biggest problems that we've got to find a a solution for, because every time a kid's adoption is disrupted, man, it wrecks them and it makes them that much harder to trust someone else. Absolutely. No, we have kids. We have kids under me that they've been disrupted so many times that they don't want to be adopted. No, because they feel, I mean, their their first person wasn't able to follow through and parent them, their biological family. And now we've had all these people promising them family and 
giving up on them. Yeah. And and I think that you were right. It's people don't have the right expectation going into it, especially people. I agree that foster to adopt is not a great scenario. Uh, I don't think people should go into it like that. But when you're a foster parent, you get you, you have more of an expectation of, especially if you're an experienced foster parent, of what traumatized kids are going to be like than someone who is like, I want to adopt. Uh, I want to give back. So they go on to a recruitment website. They see a picture of a kid. They're like, that's my baby. Yeah. That's I just knew the moment I saw their picture. And then, you know, sometimes those are great families who pass their home studies. They go to the meetings. They say everything right. They've done all the research. They get the kid. He breaks the stuff and they're like, he needs to leave. And it's like. But no matter what, what you say to someone, they don't get it they until don't. they experience it. Until they you don't. Understand kids smearing poop on the wall, breaking things. It's like, I remember a friend of mine was uh, struggling. It was actually that exact situation. She had seen her and her significant other saw him on a heart gallery and they wanted to give back. They wanted to adopt. They had hearts for kids who needed homes. They went through the process. I mean, they're great people. They're a great family, but they didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And I went over there one day because she was about to disrupt. And I was like, you know, what what can we solve here? And the main problem was he was punching the wall and putting holes in the wall. And that was scary because she hadn't. What does that mean? Like, what's he going to do? Yeah. But for someone who's been a foster parent for a little while, it's like, this isn't a big deal. Like, he just has big emotions. And if, if you were that age, you might want to put a hole in the wall, too. Let's find a way to outlet. So I was like, let's get a punching bag for him or some mm-hmm. athletic thing he could do in the back yard but in the end it was just too much you can tell someone over and over what a traumatized kid looks like and what that's going to look like in your home when it happens in your home it's a crisis and you're scared and you think they're going to hurt someone or hurt you or hurt Mm. themselves this is what traumatized kids do Mm -hmm. and especially when they're about to be adopted by you they're looking to see that you're going to love them even if they put a hole in the wall and guess what if you're like I can't handle this when they start putting holes in the wall (laughs) they're going to start putting more holes in the wall because they've been burned so many times they're probably just going to be like I need to get out of this yeah and how are they going to get out of it how have they gotten out of it before by going crazy and disrupting placements mm-hmm. or saying yes. they're going to hurt themselves so they can get Baker acted. And once I yep. get Baker acted, they definitely won't want me. Uh, so. That's true. I just often think, even though like you shouldn't go into foster care to adopt, I feel like the people who are going to be a most likely to be successful adoption, especially for these older parents. kids who've had you know trauma is, is someone who's been a foster parent. So yeah. I wonder how we extend that to minimize disruptions. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times when you have teens or older kids that need to be adopted, you're immediately trying to recruit from these websites. But what if you were trying to recruit more from existing foster parents? There's lines. I like that idea. I think it's a great idea. I think we should do that. (laughs) But when you start doing that, there's also lines of we have to do the proper channels of recruitment so we don't get into a situation where it's like a backdoor adoption. I think there should be something like that, but we we, we want to be careful and not get How into would a that situation be different than doing normal recruiting to the public. Somewhere, Red is listening to this and like freaking out, uh, or Elise, because she's like, "Don't take my foster family." <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Red. Uh, um, like, if there was a way to do it correctly, do you think that would make less adoptive disruptments because these are people who know what they're getting into? Yeah, I do. I think it would be great. I also think though that like experienced foster parents don't always want to adopt 
that. That's true. I, I definitely think it's like safe to say this is a conversation that should go on and that we should keep continue to think about and talk about because these are really great points. And the scenario, I feel like I could predict it at like word for word. Like someone sees child on heart gallery. Someone says this child was meant to be mine. I feel it in my soul. They go through all the motions. The child gets in their home. They smear poop. They call you and say, sorry, it's so late at night. Yeah. I have to talk to you. I can't do this anymore. And it's always a surprise to us, even though it happens so often, because we vetted these people. <laughs> like we think they're going to be it's good. Not, I, I we don't can, think that it's not good people. I no, think it's not. It's, it, I think they just don't get it but, until you do it. But in our match staffings a lot of times we weed out people that were like this person's not going to be able to handle this yeah but you know um, like <laughs> when, when you see some of the most extreme behaviors is during those times of transition those weekend visits and i know that i'm sure you've seen lots of these behaviors but when kids, mm-hmm. even when it's like a fantastic home and the kids excited to go they're like doing crazy things with their excrement and it's like yeah. what's going on and it's like well i've got to have control over my own body so i've got yeah. control over nothing else or they're you know? peeing into a shampoo bottle because they make them mad you know yeah like it always seems to be their bodily functions but if you think about it it's like the one thing they have control over and it always seems to be the case when they're like reunifying or being adopted it's a very difficult thing for kids to go through even when it's happy it is. I've had a teenager go number two in my car. Oh, God. Teenager? Oh, God. I didn't know till after. And I was like, what? What does that smell? Were you able to and charge it, like a $250 fee like Uber does? No. <laughs> no. I don't want to know why you know what Uber charges for poop. Because I read the fine print. Yeah. I don't know about poop. I just don't want vomit. If you throw up in an Uber, you have to pay Ubers $250. Ubers probably have a lot of vomit situations. Just like you should never drink too much and take an um, Uber. Just drink a little and take an Uber. But it, it was horrible. <laughs> but it's just like, I felt so bad for that kid. Yeah, that must have been like more of like... Because it was on her way to, like, sexual abuse therapy. Oh. And it was like, I didn't say anything to her. I took her home. I went and got, you know, and then I cleaned my seat. But it's like, this poor girl. Yeah. You know, eventually she got adopted. It was wonderful, but it was so rough. And kids do crazy stuff. And people who know what they're doing freak out and disrupt them. And, you know, this is not an adoption case I had, but the worst day I ever had was we placed this kid and he was he was on the spectrum and he wasn't high functioning. He was pretty much nonverbal. We found him a therapeutic home. Two days in, this guy calls and he's like, you need to come get this kid. You need to come get this kid. He's freaking out. We don't know what to do. Calm the guy down. You know, go through scenarios like here's try this, try this. I'm like, okay, where are you? And it's like, we're on the side of the road. Oh, my gosh. And I get there and this kid is in the car. They locked him in the car. He's beating on the windows. He's taking his shirt off because he's so hot. Oh, my gosh. No wonder he was freaking out. <sighs> I get him in my car. I find him a dry shirt. And like, you know, we found him in like this wonderful group home after. But like, I think about that all the time. It's like you couldn't even get him home. 
you couldn't drive them to the office. Like, I know we hate it when people, there's all these stories about like people dropping kids, but, yeah, like, but like, you like, locked them in the car on the side of the road. Like I should have called an abuse report yeah. on you. Can't, even adults, when there's too much limbo in our lives, we definitely dig in our heels, you know? And we were like, stop, I have control over my own life. I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I'm going to speed on the highway. Watch me. <laughs> I mean, fully functioning adults who follow normal rules do things like that. I'm starting to worry about your speeding. <laughs> I don't. Actually, speed like ever. Like I probably drive too slow. Actually, but like, or we spend too much money. You know, when we feel mm-hmm. like our lives are out of control, we're yeah. like, I'm going to Target and I'm going to spend too much money. Is that more relatable? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I do that. You know, we yeah. do things like that. These kids, some of them have been in limbo their entire lives, their whole life, and then they're triggered by more limbo, and we start to see their behaviors. And there's nothing that you can do to talk someone out of that. Like your Mm-mm. conscious mind is not able to say like, oh, you're totally right. This is a good change. You're still going to dig in your heels when there's any change. Everyone hears it in the training that like traumatized kids, they're always on 100 because they're stuck yeah. in survival mode. It's like someone in, in road rage and traffic. It, and it's Yeah. And like I understand how placements feel sometimes because like. I run at like 30. If I get any higher or lower, I might freak out. I've been in child welfare so long that I stay at 30 while everything's burning around me. <laughs> but people get kids and the kids at 100 all the time. So the placement, like the parent gets to 70 and they're like, I can't handle this. And then the engine blows up, which is. <laughs> yeah. It, it's tough. And yeah, I think you're right. More foster parents need to adopt. I don't think everyone has the mindset of like, I need to adopt more kids. But some foster parents, and I've had a great one that I wanted to adopt the kids she had. She's like, no, it's I'm not adopting the kids. It's not for me. I got it. Foster is we're going to try to reunify. We're going to try to find a forever home for this family. That's a wonderful mindset. Yeah. And some people actually do foster care to do that. Yeah. And that's what your mindset should be when you get into it. I've had one family that got into foster to adopt that I like. And I thought their mindset was good because they had an infant baby. They're like, we're doing foster to adopt, but we understand that we're not going to adopt most of the kids we have. Yeah. And you can't. So. Or you won't have space anywhere. Like, listen. Jack would have 70 kids. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't. And, and the dad fought the case, and it was a non-offending dad who was abused himself. And, you know, he went to court. He got his, his kid back. He was non-offending. And the foster parents were like, okay, we understand. Yeah. I don't, I'm not saying I could ever do that. But that's a mindset that you have to have. Absolutely. And the truth of the matter is, like, much less reunifications happen than should. Yeah. So when they do happen, we should be so excited. We should praise the heck Mm -hmm. out of those parents and Mm -hmm. what they've accomplished because it's not easy. And especially in our area, I feel like maybe it's just been my experience, but knowing that we are really the heart of the opioid crisis right now, most cases are drug related. Depending on the drug, most drug addicts don't recover. And certainly not within a year to reunify with their child. The bottom line is most people who have drug addictions have trauma that led to the drug addiction. Mm -hmm. Most. Have you met any drug addicts that never had any trauma? There's a direct link. But I think that... You know, for someone to recover fully from a drug addiction, 
generally takes more than a year because first you've got to you've got to get them to a point first of all where they're willing to work on the problem and admit that there even is a problem and then when you get to that point okay can we talk about the trauma that led to that then i mean really it takes years to work through that trauma you've got to get them clean whether that's inpatient or outpatient rehab to really successfully reunify with someone who has a drug addiction probably should take closer to four or five years that's not fair to these kids Right. No, it's not. But sometimes those cases last that long. Yeah. And or sometimes they are shorter and then the kid comes back into care for a second time or a third time I've seen. So I feel like so rarely are parents able to reunify that when it does happen. That's amazing. Like we should get so freaking excited about that. And also as a foster parent, like, listen, if, if you want to adopt, chances are you're going to adopt. I really, I mean, I've been asked to adopt way more kids than I have. You know, sometimes it's just like, I don't feel like I'm the parent of that kid. And so if I were to say yes, sure, I'm giving that kid a family, but she deserves a family that would move mountains to be able to adopt her. You know, mm-hmm. she deserves a family or he deserves a family that feels in their heart that they're his parent. Yeah. And if I were to adopt that child just because we have a bond, just because, you know, I've been their mom for this amount of time. That's not fair to them. They deserve way more than that. Mm-hmm. Every kid deserves to be just like like you hung the moon. If I were to say yes to every kid that I've been asked to adopt, I mean, I wouldn't be able to foster. Definitely a situation that a lot of foster parents find themselves in. So what has been your best day? OK, best days, lots of adoptions. My first adoption was on National Adoption Day, mm-hmm. and it was the first National Adoption Day that I'd been to. So I was like, okay, I did this work, and now it's like, it's a party. It it's is awesome. A party. It's so cool. When a teenager gets a placement and then gets adopted, it's like you cry because, like, most of our teens are, they've been through so much and They've been through so many placements and they have behaviors that are like, man, I had one kid that I had for a long, long time as a regular case manager and he was in group homes. His group home got shut down. So I would be with him on like him and two other kids that lived there for like two weeks. And they're like, that was like the toughest two weeks in foster care because I had three kids at a group home that got shut down and we're trying to find them all placements. So I'm like... (laughs) With them all day, every day. So I like, wow. I, then I get yelled at by judges because I'm not doing my work. But they found a traditional home for him. They found a mentor for him who then adopted him. Oh, wow. That's great. And he was 17. He was about to turn 18 and he got adopted. Oh, my goodness. That's and awesome. it was like the best, the best day ever. What do you think are some basic things that other partners can do to work better with you and make your job easier as an adoption case manager? Know that... We're going to try to put siblings together. Expectations are huge. Um, realizing that everything is a it's a long process to adoption. If a friend of mine is, oh, you know, um, my foster child was TPR'd and we're being considered as an adoptive placement. Um, one of the things I always recommend is get a hold of the adoption packet ASAP yep. because we've all got copies of it. Ask someone for a copy of it, fill it out, email it. Do not hand it to anybody. Email it because then you have a record because when it gets lost, when there's turnover in case management, you know, and there's a new case manager, all of a sudden you could just say, here's the adoption. Yep. Oh, I don't you don't have perfect. it. Here it is. Um, do everything ASAP um, so that they're not waiting on you because they have a lot of stuff that they've got to do. Mm-hmm. So if you have all of your stuff done and if you're ever offered National Adoption Day, 
it usually speeds things up because they have to try and get like if you agree to National Adoption Day, you will have National Adoption Day and they will get all of the paperwork done before then. Obviously, there's always like the extenuating circumstances, like if there's a sibling separation staffing that goes on too long, if there's the other things that can kind of hold things up if you're out of state and have extra background checks. But um, so I feel like turning in your paperwork emailing it so you have a digital copy and can easily re-email it Mm -hmm. and uh, just staying on top of everything and always asking what the next thing you can do is uh, will help your process go quicker. Nope, you hit the nail on the head with that one. If you turn everything in, like the case managers want to get the adoptions done because one, they're being pushed to get them done by their bosses and their bosses and their bosses and their bosses. And two, like adoptions are awesome. Three, it's another kid off your caseload, which, you know, they have 40 kids. <laughs> Things do tend to move faster at National Adoption Day. They also tend to move faster May and June because that's the end of the fiscal year. So they're trying to get their... Interesting. Ad- that was my other two adoptions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're trying to meet their goals, which, you know, it shouldn't be like that. But Can you give me a word that you think people would use to describe an adoption case manager? A word that people would use to describe an adoption case manager. One that I would use is experienced. Like I said before, these are all experienced case managers. They've been in the system. They know what they're doing. What would surprise most people to learn about your role? The most surprising thing, as we touched on before, to learn about our role from the outside of child welfare world is we're not charging you a bunch of money. (laughs) (laughs) We don't make a lot of money and we have a lot of kids that need to be adopted. So we're trying to do that. I I think that's the most surprising thing. What is your self-care routine to combat trauma fatigue from secondary trauma that we all experience from working with kids and parents who've experienced trauma? It's not my best area. (laughs) I I mean, I'm not in child welfare anymore. (laughs) So it's like, I don't feel like I uh, succeeded in that. (laughs) I met my wife during my child welfare stint. When I was single, there wasn't much of a self-care routine at all. I worked all the time. You're probably feeling depressed and anxious a lot. Yeah, but also it's like... I didn't have anything else to do. Yeah. (laughs) So I didn't really like I could work a lot. And I did work a lot and it it helped me in my career and it helped my cases. So self-care would be like, I did this home visit. I'm going to McDonald's (laughs) on the way home. As I grew as a person and a case manager and, you know, as my life went in a direction to where like working 50, 60 however many hours a week is just it takes away from other things it's harder in this line of work because you know when you're a workaholic here you're helping people yeah it feels less selfish it feels less selfish and you use as an excuse i learned turn your phone off on the weekends and don't answer it past a certain time hide it i had a a parent And I was driving over the Howard Franklin Bridge and this parent called me 41 times back to back to back to back to back to back back while I was on the bridge. I didn't answer the phone. I knew it wasn't an emergency because he called me 10 times a day every day. And like I talked to him a lot. You have to not answer the phone all the time as you know, that might sound bad. No, I think people. it's important. Uh, not answering the phone all the time was the biggest self-care for me. Going to the movies. 
child welfare work is so serious and this so i like i'll watch like professional wrestling because and i i don't care because i deal with the horrors of life every day so i can watch something stupid that's awesome (laughs) yeah i i have something similar not wrestling but just like really tacky tv show uh, like reality tv shows that i watch that are like um like they're so dumb and sometimes it's embarrassing like i'm not going to tell you what they are (laughs) but um you know sometimes you just need something mind-numbing to kind of like recover from the stuff that like goes on during the day yeah so what do you think uh, the biggest struggles were that you faced as an adoption case manager? The amounts of paperwork are like really tough. So it's hard to prioritize doing field stuff and like coming into adoptions. I was used to the field. So sitting down and like typing a child study or typing the home study, like I'll go and do the home studies all day, but then typing them. Um, if someone's missing something, having to ask them for the extra document, which yeah. is like, I'm like non-confrontational to a fault. <laughs> so I like, it would be, I'd have to like build myself up and be like, Hey, you did this wrong. Can you do it again? <laughs> and that's like the simplest thing to ask someone. But I think like this person's going to yell at me. Um, you still have to do on call in adoptions on call, no matter the position in child welfare is always going to be the hardest. Because those are the emergencies. Those That's are, when you're responding to a crisis. Those are the those are the crises. It's not always just a crisis. It's like kids have night to night placements a yeah. lot. We have to pick up the kids in the morning. We have to drop them off at night. During on call week, you get zero work done. So there's times during on call week, and as an adoption case manager, you're trying to get all this stuff done to get this kid adopted. The hearing has to wait another month. So then you don't meet your projection. Right. You don't meet your goal. Right. What do you think the community can do to prevent more kids from needing to come into care? Help your neighbors. Yeah. You know, be a community. The It takes a village thing is not just a cool saying, but it's like when I grew up, my... And I was from a small town, but like my neighbor's parents were my second parents. If you see someone struggling, help them. Like a lot of the... the People that we get that come into care don't have support systems. If you know struggling parents, single parents, male or female, be their friends. Help with their kids. Give them a date night. Um, if you see abuse, call in a report, of course. Right. So many abuse situations are from, it's just people can't handle Raising kids is hard. Yeah. As you know. Yeah. I don't know. Life's hard without a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. Support is huge. Having like a community of people that help you makes parenting e- easier. It's never easy, but it can be easier for sure. And I feel like a lot of people, I don't know if it's our culture or just the days that we're living in, but people think that they shouldn't get in other people's business. Yeah, we're, I think it is our culture. We're really individual culture. Like, I don't, I don't want to impose on them. That's not my business. That's their business. I take care of my business. They take care of their business. But really, that's not conducive to. No, it's not. And as you said, like, to get your adoption done faster, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Reaching out to people need people to reach out to them. Yeah. Because when you're in a dark place, you're embarrassed. Yeah, you are. It's hard for people to ask for help. And sometimes they don't even know they need help. Or like, know that anybody's willing to help them. Yeah. If you become someone's friend, that mentality of they're judging me goes away. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is my friend. They can help me. 
Right. And I can help them not being in people's business, but like being in people's lives keeps kids out of care. What do you hope to do in your future to help make our community a better place? Man, I there's so many things that pop in my head. I want to raise my family well and we want to be in our community and be people that people can reach out to within the community for meals, for support. It all starts there. That's the biggest thing is your household, your surrounding area. But in the larger sense, adoption would be great. I don't know if that's in the cards for us right now. (laughs) Being a guardian ad litem would be great. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming today, David. We really appreciate having having you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.